Welcome everybody here, everybody joining us online. It's good to have you guys. It is Christmas time, right? Yes, it is. Woo! It's the time to get those trees out. We did a little bit of decorating here. Maybe not as much as in years past, but still wanted to get into the holiday spirit. I know at my house, we've decorated. Didn't take a whole lot of time. We'll get into that later. You guys have probably decorated as well. You got your trees out. You got them lit. You got your ornaments hung. Some of us look forward to that every year. Some of us, usually the guy that's got to drag it out of the attic or the basement, just says, ah, I'd rather not. Sometimes it's a lot of hassle. I get it. Not everybody likes putting up the Christmas tree. But for better or worse, it is usually the symbol of this season. We always associate Christmas with the Christmas tree. And as I got to thinking about that, I was writing this message, I was actually looking at these trees, and I thought, you know, Christmas trees are kind of a symbol of more than just the season. It's really a symbol of our circumstances in a lot of ways, too. They're kind of like this little snapshot of what our life is looking like at that moment. A couple of examples of what I mean. When I was growing up, my mom's house, we had this really big living room with like big vaulted ceilings, a lot of space. And we didn't have any animals, we didn't have any small kids, so nobody's going to be messing with the tree. And my mom is a particular lady with particular tastes, and so if she's going to go to the hassle of putting up a Christmas tree, it is going to be on the cover of Better Homes and Gardens. So that's the kind of tree we had, just like this immaculate tree that nobody's allowed to touch. And that's what the circumstances allowed for. The circumstances when my wife and I got married were a little different. We were both college kids. We were working part-time jobs, and so not a whole lot of money. I got up at 3.30 in the morning and bought a Black Friday Christmas tree that you could see through. We brought that home. But that didn't leave any money for the actual ornaments, so we strung popcorn, and we cut up paper, and we used puff paints and glitter, and that was our Christmas tree that year. It's just sort of this little circumstantial symbol right there of our poverty, but our creativity as well. Today, our, our uh, Christmas tree, it looks a little different still. Uh, the living room in our home is not real big, and we have two boys, one of whom is uh, just turned one a couple months ago, so he wants to climb on everything and touch everything, so trees with ornaments are just a bad idea. So we went and bought my favorite Christmas tree yet. It's about this big. You take it out of a box and put it on a bookshelf, and you're done. I love that thing. That's just a little picture of our circumstances right now, what it allows for. And so that got me thinking, too. I'm like, okay, Christmas trees, they're, they're sort of this symbol of the circumstance. What about 2020? What would be a fitting Christmas tree for the circumstances we find ourselves in this year? And I got to looking at trees, and some of them were ugly, and some of them were like the sad, droopy Charlie Brown tree, and there were trees made of toilet paper, all very strong contenders. And then I found this. Mwah. It's perfection. That is the symbol. That's the tree of 2020, because this year stunk, did it not? It was just this dumpster fire of a year. And I thought, this captures that. I, I feel that vibe here. This was a rough year for everybody. I think we can all admit that. I don't know anybody that's looking at 2020 and going, yeah, I could do with some more of that. No, we're all waiting for this year to end, and we want to get on to 2021, because that's a new chapter. It's a new opportunity for better circumstances. We all want that which is really kind of sad, because this is the, the end of the year. This is the season when we're supposed to celebrate, when we're supposed to gather together with people, and we remember something joyful, and we have joy in our hearts, and we sing joy to the world, and joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And yet, if we're being honest, I don't think I'm the only one that feels like maybe there's a shadow kind of looming over Christmas this year. Numbers are on the rise, restrictions are closing down, getting a little more stringent. 
We're being encouraged to avoid large family gatherings for holidays. And, and it all just kind of puts a damper on what's supposed to be a very joyful time of year. And it's in circumstances like this where we need a stubborn kind of joy. A joy that, that just won't quit regardless of the situation. We need a joy that is audacious enough to shine even in the humdrum and the humbug of 2020. And that's what this series that we're starting today is all about. For the next four weeks, we're going to be in a series called The Audacity of Joy. A joy that just refuses to quit no matter what. And we're going to be learning about this audacious kind of joy by looking at the Christmas story in the book of Luke and the, story, the chapters that surround it. Specifically, we're going to be looking at a number of songs that people sing in those chapters. And you might think that that sounds appropriate, like it's, it's the Christmas story. They're, they're going to sing. There's going to be singing. What we sometimes don't realize is that the circumstances in the first century surrounding the birth of Christ were terrible. This was a really hard time in the history of the Jewish people. The Roman Empire had taken over. They had overtaxed the people. Literally everybody, except for uh, bureaucrats and people, lived below the poverty line. Hunger was not uncommon. There were Roman soldiers stationed all over the place to serve as a constant reminder of their humiliation and defeat. Like, we've dealt with 2020 for one year. They're going on, like, a several decades of 2020. It's not good times, and yet... Couched away in this chapter and all this humbug are these songs that dare to celebrate joy. And we're going to learn from those, maybe even sing some of those ourselves over the next four weeks. And today we're going to start off by looking at a song from a young girl named Mary. And her song is found in the book of Luke, in chapter 1 of Luke. Uh, if you have your Bibles, pop those open, turn there, follow along. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screens to the side. This is usually the part where I would say you can follow along on the FCC Monmouth app. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty with that this morning. We don't have time to get ironed out. So if you don't have a Bible with you, please follow along on the screens to the side. Now, in order to really appreciate Mary's song and what she's going to sing here in just a couple of minutes, we got to really appreciate her circumstances and her situation because there was plenty of potential for some humbug in Mary's Christmas story. And you all know what I mean by humbug, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, bah, humbug, just that really unjoyful spirit. There's plenty of potential for that in her story. Just as a, a little reminder, because we don't tell the story except for once a year, Mary was a, a teenage girl in Israel in the first century. The, the word that's used to describe her, she's, it usually applies to a girl of about 14. Could be a little younger, could be a little older, but somewhere in that age range. And she gets a visit from an angel. And this angel says to her, Mary, good news, you're super blessed. You are going to give birth to the Messiah, to God's chosen deliverer and savior. And Mary, and I don't want to downplay this, is ecstatic. She is joyful. She is worshipful. She sees this as a very good thing. She does, however, have one very valid question. How is all of this going to happen, angel? I'm a virgin. And the angel says, you know what? Don't worry about it. Power of the Holy Spirit's going to take care of that. And she says, oh, all right, cool. I think the exchange was maybe a little more involved than that. But that's the gist that we get from Luke. Nonetheless, that question is pretty significant. And it has something to say beyond Mary's sexual experience or the biological hurdles that are going to need to be cleared in order for her to conceive a child. It has something to say about her 
her social uh, and communal standing, about her life and what it's going to look like going forward. Because Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. And betrothal was kind of like engagement, but a little more serious and a little more binding. They weren't officially married. They weren't living in a house together. They certainly weren't sleeping together. But for all intents and legal purposes, in the eyes of their community, they were married. And so Mary here, this 14-year-old girl, betrothed to Joseph, if she winds up pregnant, and it's not with Joseph, obviously, there's really only one logical conclusion that people were left to draw. And Mary could tell all day long, no, 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 I didn't commit adultery. No, 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 I didn't cheat on Joseph. The power of the Holy Spirit conceived this child in me. And everybody would say, yeah, okay, Mary. You know, no, nobody's going to believe that, right? That would have about as much believability as, as if somebody were to say that today. So Joseph, being of sound mind, seeing that his betrothed is pregnant and it's not his child, is really only left with one conclusion that would have been completely reasonable in any other circumstance. Mary cheated. And if that's the case, he would be well within his rights to divorce her. And that would subject her to an immense amount of shame. In this first century culture, shame was more than just like a little bit of embarrassment on Facebook or something. It was a really, really big deal. Now, with that amount of shame, she would have had to have found somebody else to marry, maybe. And maybe that would have happened, but I'm just going to be honest with you. In first century Israel, an adulteress with a child is a really hard sell. And a lot of women in Mary's situations did not marry somebody else. Maybe she could have lived at home in her father's house for a while. But to be honest with you, he's probably not real happy with her because women who committed adultery brought shame on their fathers as well. They were seen as men who couldn't control their own household. And a lot of times, young women were married off young because you just couldn't afford to feed that many mouths. Times were not good. So the chances of Mary living in her father's house, not real great either. There's the potential that she could support herself by begging and relying on people's charity. Some people did that to, to mix measures of success. Some women chose less scrupulous means of employment and uh, went down the road of the oldest profession, we'll say, in human history. And all of these were to say, all this to say, Mary's future is really up in the air. There are a lot of what ifs and a lot of potentials and a lot of possibilities. Not a whole lot of them are favorable. It's kind of a bleak future, really. And again, I don't want to downplay this. When the angel comes to Mary and she says, you are going to give birth to the Savior, she rejoices. She sees this as an amazing thing. She worships, worships God. But my question is, what was Mary's thought like six weeks later when the morning sickness started to settle in? And where were her thoughts and her concerns a little further down the road when she started to show and people would point and they would whisper? I don't think it's unreasonable to say, yes, this was a great and glorious thing while also acknowledging that a 14-year-old girl is going to have a lot of questions and probably lose more than one or two nights of sleep with the what-ifs rolling around in her brain. There was plenty of potential for some humbug in Mary's story. And it's important that we recognize that and realize that because that's actually what makes her so relatable. This is where we kind of connect with Mary and, and her story intersects with our lives a little bit because we have plenty of potential for humbug in our lives and in our circumstances as well. I mean, just, just think about this past year a little bit. It started off okay. And then by March, our entire community was, far, for all intents and purposes, shut down. 
On the religious side of things, we couldn't meet together in person. So we met online. For some, that was okay, but I think we could agree it was maybe not ideal. Probably the hardest part for me and probably for a lot of you, we couldn't meet together in person for Easter, which is like the biggest day of the year for us. That was kind of took the wind out of our sails a little bit. On the day-to-day side of things, a lot of the conveniences and just the standard ways of life that we've grown accustomed to had to be put on hold, and we had to push pause on those. We got to important holidays like Thanksgiving, and, and all of a sudden our, our tables were a little emptier than we had hoped. And ironically enough, the people that, that we were most thankful for, for a lot of us, couldn't be around. There were a lot of things that could take the wind out of our sails this year. And we've all experienced these general frustrations to some extent, but really the, the real humbug is how we've experienced 2020 in more personal and frankly more painful ways. And I think this is probably true for all of us. I know in, in my family and in our house, uh, my youngest son I mentioned, he turned one this year. My family lives in the southern part of the state where levels are a lot higher than they are here, and so travel has been very difficult for them. And outside of a handful of visits, they've largely missed the entire first year of his life. They missed the baby stage. They missed the infant stage. They missed most of the toddler stage so far. And a lot of you have missed out on births and birthdays and some of those precious memories of little people in your life because of the circumstances of 2020. In our home, my wife's grandfather passed away in April. And because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we were unable to gather or meet or hold a service for several months. And that grief was allowed to linger far longer than it should have been in in what was maybe cruel and in an unfair way. And many of you have been forced to deal with that grief and that lack of closure far longer than you needed to or probably should have. And you've been forced to grieve in somewhat relative isolation in times when you needed people the most because of the circumstances of this year. In our home, we're no exception. We have wrestled with the isolation and the waiting for this cloud to lift. We have dealt with emotional and mental health issues and depression, and and many of you have felt those same burdens and those same struggles in your lives as we wait for this to just sort of pass through. A lot of our kids have missed out on high school football games and homecomings and really significant events in the closing years of their adolescence. And for some of us, we might say, well, that's not too bad, but for those from whom it was stolen, and for those parents that very much wanted to see those events in their children's lives, it's more than a little unfair and a little cruel. A lot of us have had loved ones that have gone in for surgeries or been hospitalized. We've not been able to go to them or visit them or encourage them in person. We have had fathers, mothers, grandparents, siblings in nursing homes that we've been isolated from and cut off from in the closing years of their lives. The real humbug of 2020 is not in the frustrations of having to wear a mask or being kept from indoor dining. The real pain of 2020 is in these very personal things that were taken and stolen from us. There are plenty of opportunities to be frustrated and have some humbug in our lives. And this is where Mary meets us. Because her life was no walk in the park either. And as she puts her arm around us in the middle of our frustrations, she also encourages us to join with her in a song of joy. As we look at Mary's song, what we're going to see is that her stubborn joy, the audacity of Mary's joy, does not stem from her situation, 
but rather it stems from her faith. Sometime in the middle of her pregnancy, Mary goes, she visits her cousin Elizabeth for a while, and and this is where we find her song. This is a 14-year-old girl facing an uncertain future with all the pressures and the uncertainty of that weighing upon her, and yet listen to how she sings. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It has joy in God, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. That's Mary. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He's lifted up the humble He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. Mary is in this kind of precarious situation, and yet despite her circumstances of a 14-year-old, unmarried, pregnant girl facing a potentially bleak future, she says, I glorify God and I rejoice. My joy is found in Him. And we might say, why? I mean, your story kind of stinks so far. And her answer is, I do not root my joy in my situation. I root my joy in God and in his work. And we read a little bit about his work in her song. You may have noticed that halfway through, it kind of shifts away from Mary to all this ambiguous group of people. There are actually two groups of people sung about here. One, on the one hand, is the, uh, the proud, rich rulers. All those descriptors are one group of people. And that is probably talking about Rome and the Roman Empire. These were the people that had all the power, that had all the control, that had all the wealth, that had all the security. For them, if we were to look at their circumstances, everything's coming up aces. They're great. And on the other hand, in Mary's song, we have the the humble, hungry servants. And it is talking about Israel, God's people, the ones who have to deal with the poverty and the humiliation and the desperation every day. Circumstantially, things stink. And we would think, based solely on circumstances, that the Romans would have joy and that the Jews would have despair, but that's not what we hear in this song. Actually, we hear that because of what God is doing through this child that Mary's carrying, circumstances will be changed, and the situation is going to flip on its head, and those who presently rejoice will mourn, and those who presently have misery will rejoice. And there's a really important lesson about our circumstances and our situations buried in this song. They change rather quickly, unpredictably, and oftentimes outside of our control. You think about a guy named David Siegel, for instance. David owns, I think he still owns, one of the largest um, timeshare companies, at least in the state of Florida, if not the United States. Hundreds, maybe thousands of properties under his ownership. And he was raking in a very comfortable income, we'll say. So much so that he could have a home built that modeled the Palace of Versailles. Uh, That's not a joke. There's a whole documentary about it. It's rather entertaining. He was bringing it in. And then 2008 happened. And the housing market collapsed. And the U.S. economy tanked. And all of a sudden, nobody had any money to go anywhere on vacation. 
And David's income drastically dwindled to next to nothing overnight. Where once he had a whole fleet of housekeepers and personal chefs, now he had to do his own laundry and pick up after his own dog and fix his own meals. Where once he could hand over a credit card to his wife to go shopping without a second thought or concern about how much she would spend, now he had to dole out pennies and quarters and bills and really pinch those pennies to make sure they had enough to cover the bills at the end of the month. Within 48 hours, his entire world was turned on its head because our circumstances and our situations oftentimes change quickly, unpredictably, and many times outside of our own control. The Romans who sat on top did not choose to be dethroned, but the work and the hand of God had other plans in mind, and it happened quickly and without their say. And what Mary is singing in this song is joy, not joy rooted in her precarious situations or circumstances, but joy rooted in something far more solid and unchanging. It's the work that God was doing in her and through her and all around her, particularly through this child named Jesus that she was carrying. That is the foundation of her joy, not her experience of circumstances, but the experience of God and his work. And there is a life-changing lesson in there for us if we care to learn it. Audacious joy is not rooted in our experience of circumstances. That joy that just won't quit, that's too stubborn to go away, even when life seems to have kicked you to the curb. It's not rooted in our experience of what's currently going on in our situations. Rather, it is rooted in our experience of God's work in our lives. Sometimes we are tempted to look at our lives and our situations, and we ask, is, is my job going well? Is my marriage healthy? Are my kids staying out of trouble? Is my garage full of the right toys? Am I going to go on vacation this year? Am I healthy? Is the country in a good spot? We ask all of these circumstantial questions, none of which are bad, by the way. If you can pull it off and you can get affirmatives to all of those, do it. Just don't be surprised if the situation changes rather abruptly and beyond your control, because that's what life does. It changes on a dime and oftentimes doesn't ask our permission. And building joy on those kinds of shifting sands is really just setting us up for disappointment. Now, can our circumstances make us happy? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can be more happy in pleasant circumstances than I can in less favorable circumstances. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about joy. It is an insuppressible good feeling in the inmost being that is not reliant upon what is happening circumstantially, but there is a satisfaction and a peace and a rest that somehow exists despite what I'm going through in this moment. And that kind of joy cannot be sustained by the shifting sands of circumstances. Jesus kind of warns us about this. If you know the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, or, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm getting blank now, but he says, don't build your life on, on shifting sands. And there's a warning in there because the, the house he, he tells about, this parable, it falls with a great crash. And that's a, a really good warning to apply to our lives because a lot of times we can look at our circumstances and our situations and think, if I can control this, if I can do that, if I can make this the way I want it, then, then I will have joy. But as we've said numerous times already, those circumstances change on a dime. Sand is very fluid. It's at the mercy of the wind and the waves. 
it can be blown, it can be washed away. You would never hope to build something stable on sand. I mean, because of engineering advances and science today, people do build on the sand, but even today, it's a very precarious endeavor, and sometimes it still winds up looking like this. It may be good for a while, but the shifting nature of sand just makes it an unstable foundation. This is not wisdom. It is not good or advisable to build a joy on something that is so precarious or ever-changing as our situations. But there is something we can build on. Something that is solid, that does not move, that does not shift, and is not at the mercy of our situations. It's what Mary roots her joy in. It's the work that God is doing in you and through you and all around you, particularly through this one we celebrate called Jesus. It's the good news that we call the gospel. And the gospel, that word, it literally means good news. It is some really, really good news. It's this good news that there is a God out there that loves you. That doesn't just love you a little bit, but loves you so much that he refuses to quit on you even when you are at your lowest. You see, every one of us in here, at one point in our lives, we found some way to stand in opposition to this God. Sometimes we did it through the things that we did. Sometimes we did it through the things that we neglected. Sometimes we did it through the things that we said to about other people. Sometimes we did it through things we neglected to say to about other people. We all have found new and ever creative ways to find ourselves at odds with God and who he calls us to be. But instead of throwing his hands up in the air and saying, ah, to heck with them, literally, instead of saying that, God sent his son into this world to go and to chase us down and find us and help us understand exactly how much this God loves and cares about us. But he didn't just come to tell us this. He showed us this. He laid his life down and died so that all of our wrongs and all of our shortcomings, all of the things that we did or said or didn't say or didn't do, all the things that might distance us or put us in opposition to this God were washed away in the tide of his forgiveness. And our slates are cleared. And no longer are we at odds with God. No longer are we opposed to him in any way. And if that were enough, that would, that would be enough if that were it. But Jesus goes further. He says, not only will I fix your relationship with the eternal God, I will go to work in you, and I will start repairing the broken parts of you, and I will start mending the wounded parts of you, and I will slowly start to shape you into the person God always dreamed you to be if you will allow me. And if that were it, that would be enough to be called good news. But it goes further. He says, I'm not done yet. After I've gone to work in your heart, mending and repairing all the hurt that this world has given you, and I would have misshapen your soul, I will invite you to come and to live with me and my Father forever in bliss. And if that were enough, if that were it, that would be enough. But maybe my favorite part, and the part that I yearn for the most as I, I journey down this road is, is what he does next. He says, and after my work in this world is done, this kingdom, this family that I have built in heaven, it will flood the earth and the injustices that you suffer in this world will be righted and the wrongs will be put to rest 
and the frustrations and the circumstances and the situations that unfairly steal from you and hurt you and wound you and misshape you and that cause the tears and the bloodshed of this world, I will put all of it to rest forever so that it is less than a distant memory and I will reign and I will bring real lasting peace. And that is some really good news to anybody who has been taken from or wounded by this world and the situations we find ourselves in. That's the gospel. And it doesn't change. My life can be up, it can be down, but the gospel is still true. Our world could be doing fantastic things, or it could be just a real toilet. But the gospel is going to continue to unfold, and God is going to continue to work in me, through me, and all around me in this place, because the gospel is not dependent on my circumstances or situations. God's love is not dependent on my circumstances or situations. And the work of Jesus to reach into our lives, to save us, to heal us, and to grant us lasting peace, hope, confidence in a world that takes it away is not dependent upon the shifting sands of our circumstances. That is something worth building a lasting joy upon. The gospel is rest amidst the restlessness of all this. It's peace amongst the turmoil and the tumult of this world. It is confidence that God knows what he's doing and he's going to win. That's the good news of the gospel. And it is news of great joy. It's what we celebrate even at Christmas time. We're all looking forward to next year. And we think that when next year comes, 2021, that's our year. That's when things are going to be better. I got bad news for you. Next year, something's going to happen. Your circumstances, your situation is going to change. It's not necessarily going to be for the better. Something's going to take the wind out of your sails. Here's some more bad news. 2022, it's going to happen again. In fact, it's going to happen again and again and again every year until we pass from this earth because that's just the way that this world is rigged. There's always going to be bad news because the circumstances change. But the gospel never changes. It never fails. It never is something that that can be altered by what happens in this world. It just continues to march forward in its goodness. I was listening to a a Greek Orthodox priest uh, this week He had a a marvelous way of putting this. He said, yes, circumstances change. We all face hardship. We all face trials. This year has been evident of that. But he says we mourn with what he calls a bright sadness. And I love that phrase, a bright sadness. Because while our circumstances may steal our reason to smile, they could never take away our reason to rejoice. Because God and what he's doing in you and through you and all around you through the power of Jesus does not change. So here's the homework this week. Some of us, I'm up here talking about Jesus. I'm talking about salvation and the gospel. And you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) The first step for you is to get to know who this Jesus guy is and what he has done. Choose Christ in your life because he is the key to this joy that I'm talking about. He's the key to this hope and this promise and this future that God has been talking about for 2,000 years. That's our step. If that's a step that you need to take in your life, then at the end of the service, I'm gonna encourage everybody to get a connection card. It's a thing under your chair. 
I want you to put your name and your address on there. And on the back, just write, I want to choose Christ. We'll call you. We'll talk about what that means. And we'll take it from there. For some of us, we want to learn more about Jesus and about what, Advent. What is all this about? Why do we celebrate Christmas this way? Or maybe we want to learn more about joy. For you, if that's your next step, we have this thing called Right Now Media. It's a digital library that we subscribe to. And you can create a free account and go there anytime you want on any device that you own and start studying this stuff through video series from some of the country and the world's really greatest Bible teachers. And it's free for you. Please take it. We buy this so that you can do that exact thing. Learn about what this joy is and where it comes from. There's a, a study on there, or rather a playlist called The Audacity of Joy. Same title as our sermon series. That's a great place to start. Something that all of us can do, I think, though, this week, tomorrow morning when you wake up, or if you work thirds tomorrow evening when you wake up, make the conscious decision to rejoice in something. It's really easy to complain. There's no shortage of things to find fault in and to start complaining about and allow our circumstances and our situations to just drain us of joy. I want to challenge you to resist that and choose to rejoice. That might mean that on your drive to work that day, you turn on some, some hymns or some praise and worship music and you sing in the car on your way to work and you glorify God that way. If you're more of a contemplative person, that might mean you get out a journal. And you just start writing down, God, I praise you for how you're working in me and through me and all around me. And you start recognizing the things that God is doing. Or maybe in your prayer life, we spend a little less time asking for things. Instead, we, we make a conscious effort to spend more time praising God and thanking him because he did this or he did that or he's in work in my life or he's worked in this other person's life or I see your hand moving in the world. Choose to rejoice. And understand that while our circumstances and situations may change, the goodness of God and what he's doing in this world does not. That is the foundation for joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for the life that you have breathed into us. And I thank you for the new life that comes through Jesus. Our lives still face challenges. They, they face hard times and circumstances. But Lord, my prayer for all of us is that we would be able to root our joy in you and in what you are doing. That you would reveal to us in ever clearer ways who Jesus is and how he has saved us and what he's doing in us to make us new. My hope is that our eyes would be open to see your plan unfolding in this world and that we would see your goodness march forward despite darkness, despite frustrations and hardships. And my hope is that as a church, we would be people of praise that find joy and walk in joy and hold our heads high in joy and confident and peace because we know your goodness, we know your plans, we know what the future holds. And that is something to rejoice in. We praise you, Father, for all that you are and all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.